Revelation 21.1, Scripture says, John speaking, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Holy Spirit, we welcome you now to come into this place and have your way with us. I pray that you will sovereignly, intentionally, powerfully, and relationally move. I pray that you will get past our intellects and just come and flood our hearts tonight. Lord, we do not need extra theology tonight. Lord, we don't even need clarity on theology that we've learned. What we need is a kiss from heaven on us tonight. We need our hearts massaged. Lord, we need relief in the spirit because of the pressures, because of the conflicts, because of the disturbances in this present world. Lord, we find an agitation in our souls too often. And Lord, we're asking you to come and bust in tonight. Ravish us, Lord, with everlasting love. Come to your bride tonight, Lord Jesus, and kiss on us and love us and embrace us and reassure us and refresh us and embolden us with the promises of the Father. Help us to remember, Lord, this is not science fiction in Revelation 21. This is eternal revelation. May we receive it just like it is. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go there. I'm actually only going to give you three main things that the Lord has promised as seen in Revelation 21. But these three things, friends, are actually going to meet some needs in your heart because you have forgotten about these things and the hustle and bustle of everyday life. And so it, it does us so good just to sit down for 45 minutes and think only on these things because they're already yours. They're not actualized yet, but they're promised. They're declared. They're part of our inheritance. They're coming. You can't miss it if you are in Jesus. It is his desire not only to begin the good work in you, but that finish that he talked about, we're about to take a long look at it there. And he said what he begins, he will absolutely finish. And so your name is in the footnotes of all that I'm about to say because it applies to you. So first of all, 
The first thing he's promised is this. He has a new home for us. Now, what I'm about to preach is not from a sentimental heart. I'm the least sentimental person in the room, but I am stirred when I think about what he's got coming. A brand new home, a place where we're going to be, a place where we're going to live, a place where we're going to worship, a place in essence that we are going to serve God Almighty forever and ever. And so what does it look, out, look like? First of all, verse number one, it is a place of perfection. The scripture says, as John is receiving this revelation on the Isle of Patmos, he sees here in Revelation 21, that he saw a new heaven and he saw a new earth and the reason why he saw the new heaven and the new earth is because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more now let's get eschatological for a moment let's go into the future at this point let me tell you what's already come to an end What's already come to the end is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ established on earth for a thousand years. It has come, it has ended. The, the battle of Gog and Magog has taken place. Every single enemy of God for all of the ages has been judged and has been destroyed and has been cast into the lake of fire, including Satan, including the Antichrist, including every single demon that ever waged war against the glory of God and came against the church. By the time you get to Revelation 21, all of the natural existence and all of the cosmos, every single thing that did not bring God glory has been absolutely purged from existence. All of it has been judged and all of those rational creatures that rejected Jesus Christ are now experiencing the fruit of their unbelief and their rebellion in that place called the lake of fire. Therefore, what is existing outside of the lake of fire is a, a ecosystem of perfection. There's no sin. There is absolutely no war. There is no rebellion. There is no sickness. There is no dying. It is a literal paradise being restored, and we are going to inhabit it for all of eternity. It is, in essence, the very ecosystem that Adam lived in when he opened his eyes for the first time in the garden. It is perfect paradise under the sovereign rule of God Almighty. The Bible describes it as this, a new heavens and a new earth. Why? Because in order to eradicate every trace of sin, God has uncreated planet Earth and all of the stellar region. Now, I don't know exactly how that works. We're going to find out. I can promise you that. Some theologians will tell you that God merely kind of uh, resurrects and replenishes the current earth. I don't believe that bears out in the text. You can think that. I can think differently. We can still be in fellowship. But I do believe that when... Uh, the Apostle Peter writes about the elements melting with a fervent heat. I believe that God is going to destroy the earth and he is going to recreate a brand new earth and a brand new stellar celestial region. And he will, in that moment, have purged every trace of sin out of the cosmos. There will be nothing that falls short of the glory of God in those moments. The Bible says this, you're going to live there. You're going to be a part of it. That's going to be your environment. The culture of heaven will swallow up the culture of fallen creation. In the back of your Bible, all of this is coming to pass. But go further. In verse number two, it's not simply a place of perfection. It's going to be a place of joy. Because then you get this scene in verse number two that is described as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this is where it gets sounding 
a little bit more like H.G. Wells than it sounds like the Apostle John. The Apostle John is describing in this vision, he is witnessing the new Jerusalem, the city prepared, whose builder and maker, the architect of which is God Almighty that God has been creating this city to be literally the capital city of the eternal state forever and ever and ever. Um, there are some overlapping uh, doctrines, beliefs, theologies here, but I believe that Hebrews chapter number 12, I think it's verse 21, 22, describes this in the present tense that God has already made this place, and it is only in Revelation chapter 21 where we see it descending. That literally above the new, the new earth, there will be this cosmically created, this created by God's divine hand, the eternal capital city of the eternal state. And it's described as the new Jerusalem. And this will be the place that we inhabit forever and ever. You've got to think through these things sometimes because uh, contrary to all of the cartoons and all of the you know, caricatures of the eternal state, we're not just kind of surfing on clouds. That's not what we're doing. And as much as I, I, I love the, the descriptions of the streets of gold and the gates and all of that stuff, it, it's not an ethereal city. We're, we're not going to be li living in a trance-like state, but we're literally going to be perfect physical beings. That means we will see, we will touch, we will breathe, we will smell. We can never fall or fail. We can never get sick because we're glorified, but we're literally going to be living in a physical state of perfection. And the place that God has decreed that we will inhabit for all of eternity is the city called the New Jerusalem. And it's described as a bride being presented to her husband. And so God has been working on this and working on this and working on this. And so the bridal paradigm is not just upon the church, but this issue of the bride, the description, the metaphor of the bride, also applies to the city of the New Jerusalem that, whose dimensions are given in Scripture. And so it is being presented... It is literally being presented into the realm of visible existence in the beauty and adornment and joy of a bride being presented to her husband. And you're going to live there. And you're going to be there. Now, I know this is stretches us because we have all sorts of pragmatic, practical questions. And quite honestly, I'm not going to answer any of those for you tonight because here's, here's the reality. We don't have a clue. All we can know is what the scripture reveals and the, descript, the scriptures reveal for the most part the headlines but not all of the fine print. The fine print is going to be unveiled in the next chapter which hasn't been written yet. And so it, there is this anticipation that God is saying, I'm going to tell you what but I'm not going to tell you all the details because I'm going to leave those details for when you are experiencing it. Friends, if... God the Creator created such a majestic place as planet Earth and the universe as we know it. And of course, in recent years, we have seen mind-boggling pictures of the dimensions and the existence of, of planets and stars and black holes and all of these stunning things that are out there millions and millions of miles away. And if He can do that and all of that stuff is touched by the fall it's all groaning, waiting for its own redemption. God is going to take that away and bring about a new heavens and a new earth. If, if, if we can have our minds blown now only seeing a, a fraction of what he has prepared for us, think about how it's going to be then when we not only see it, but we're in it and we experience it. Now, I'm going to get a little more practical with you, but I am trying to just encourage you to get reacquainted with your sanctified imagination. 
You know, we, we do a lot of thinking, but we don't do a lot of creative thinking in the church anymore. We, we, we do a lot of parsing, and we do a lot of systematizing, we do a lot of planning and programming, but I'm afraid that one of the things that is kind of um, souring parts of the 21st century church, if I can risk this critique, is that we're losing our sense of wonder. We want explanations for everything, and so we're raising up generations of experts who can unscrew the inscrutable. They, they can try to make sense of that which passes understanding, and so they got a lot of letters behind their name, and they're just going to reduce God to a boxed-in great-grandfather sitting on a wicker rocker in heaven, chuckling at the misgivings of his children on planet Earth. And that's not God. And so if we will just employ our hearts and just get still, one of the benefits of just being in the prayer room is you shut out the world. And while God is being worshipped vertically and you enter into that atmosphere, you can go vertical with the Lord and you just hear him speak. And sometimes he wants to speak to you about the great things that he has prepared for his people. So look down at verse number three. It's a place of perfection and this place of joy, but it's also a place of oneness. Listen to this. And I like verse number three because people ask me all the time, why do, you, why do you talk so loud when you preach, man? Why do you shout? Why do you sweat? Why do you get red in the face? Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. Now, I'm not going to scream because it'll be painful, but the loud voice says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, don't rush past that. So John, in this revelatory moment, is seeing the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> Blows his mind. And then when, when he's, he's aware of the dimensions of the new heaven and the new earth, he's able to verbalize that. Then he sees the holy city descending downward from the heavens into the earth. And then he hears from the throne the purpose that he's seeing all of this. Why is God revealing all this? Because this is the declaration. God is saying it's not primarily about the place. It's not primarily about the renewed cosmos. It's not primarily about the renewed earth. It is primarily about the heart of the Father who has promised, I'm going to be with you forever. That's what I want. That God forever and ever and ever, everything that he's doing, ultimately for his own glory but when it comes to his contact and his interaction with humankind it is this i just want to be with my children it's an amazing thought to me matter of fact it's so stunning and so hard to comprehend that it's said like four ways in verse number three god wants to tabernacle with us that means literally we're going to be in his presence right now we experience his presence by faith even when you sense it thick even when you're in it strong, even when it lays you out on the floor and you can't get up, even when you are stirred inside and you are bursting forth in spiritual inner ecstasy, even when those moments are occurring and he's as real to you as he's ever been, it's still by faith. It is still by faith. You are experiencing him, but in the same moment you're experiencing him, you're waiting for the fullness of that which you are experiencing. I, I believe this. I believe every sensory experience that we have with the Father during this lifetime by faith, forgive me if this sounds a little irreverent, I don't mean it to be, but it is like an appetizer. It is like a taste of what is to come. 
It is that which keeps us hungry and keeps us thirsty and keeps us pressing in. Why? Because ultimately our spirit cannot be satisfied until every barrier is removed. Until every hindrance is purged, until all of the veils, the veil of our flesh, the veil of our fallenness, the veil of our our limited capacity to understand the infinite God, all of those veils and more have to be completely removed. And in the eternal state, there's no veils between you and God. You will see him and you will be like him for you will see him as he is. And so the scriptures teach us that there is an expectation, a reasonable expectation that we can live with of an intimacy with the Father in his very presence, tabernacling with him, being with him in proximity. That the Bible says in some way, I don't know how it works, but the Bible says you will see him as he is. And the result of that will be a transformation to where you are going to be like him. Um, I'm ready for the veils to be gone. I'll just, I'll just confess on my, ha- my behalf, I won't, I won't assume it's true with you, but there are seasons in my walk with Jesus where, man, I, I feel like I've got to go on a hunt to find him. I know he's there. My theology is fine. My theology is not messed up. It's not about theology. It's about relationship. And so in those moments, my relationship with him, because of whatever reason, there could be a hundred reasons, but when I don't sense him, my, my warning signs go off. When, 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 when my relationship with him in certain short seasons is reduced to just what I know about him, and I'm running off the fumes of what I know that I used to experience, but I'm not experiencing the present, I realize I am out of the will of the Father in that moment. Why? Because he didn't come just to deliver me an academic understanding of him. His desire is that he is with me and that I am with him. And so in the end of the age, that desire will have no barriers. Why? Because he's removed them all. No demon to interfere with your worship. You know the demons. You you do realize this, right? That the demons don't want you worshiping. They hate it when you worship. You know, the only thing they hate it when, more than when you worship is when we worship together. They absolutely hate it. They cannot stand the sound of our praise rising up to that throne that they wanted for themselves. And so the demons fight your worship. The demons fight your mind. The demonic uh, um, activity is structured so that it keeps throwing up veils between you and God because they don't want you to catch any closer glimpse of his glory because it is by beholding him in that secret place, in that still place, that you are transformed into the image of the one that they hate and we adore, and they don't want you to experience that. So they fight you and fight you and fight you. But in the end, they're in the lake of fire, and there's nothing they can do ever again. There's coming a day, you you and I have never experienced perfect, unhindered worship. Never. Say, wait, wait a minute, Jeff. <laughs> you don't know me. You don't know where I've been, brother. I have had unhindered, perfect worship. No, because in order for that to happen, you would have to be in his physical presence. If you were in his physical presence in that body, you'd be dead. <laughs> and so all of us, that's what we talk about when we're talking about pressing in. We're talking about, Lord, just I'm, 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 gonna, I'm, I'm pressing against what, what, what interrupts, what, what veils you what cloaks you. We just keep pressing in. In that day, my friends, there'll be nothing that presses against you when you continue to press into him. You will have all of him that you can handle. And here's something. Don't ask me to explain it, but it's true. We can be there 
10 quintillion centuries and we still will not have exhausted the goodness of God. We will be ever learning, ever pressing in, ever worshiping, ever being transformed, and it's all going to take place in this <laughs> the city called the New Jerusalem, this place of the heavenlies come to earth. Go down into verse 4 with me, because I want to touch on something that is near and dear to my family. There's a lot of confusion over it. I don't intend to put away all of the confusion today, but I do intend to disclose um, what I would call my functional theology of healing, my practical understanding of healing. Why? Because verse number four is a promise from Father, and it is this. He has a full healing for us. Now, I'm not one of those guys, and, and I, man, I so don't want to be insensitive and offend anybody. But let me tell you what, I'll get to the verses in a minute, or that verse in a minute. Let me tell you what I don't particularly care for, because I think we've used it as a cop-out for um, way too often, way too long of a time. It is, and it's a true statement, but the way that we use it is often, I believe, um, a means to almost kind of defend the honor of God, which, by the way, he doesn't need us to defend him. What am I talking about? Well, he or she didn't get healed on earth, but God wanted to heal him, so he took him home to heaven. I don't want to be insensitive. But it's the idea that we vacillate when it comes to the need for emotional, spiritual, our physical healing on earth, we vacillate with it. We kind of, man, if we're not careful, we'll play games with it. And because maybe we don't have the confidence to say, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to claim and declare healing over this person. And maybe we don't have that confidence, or if we have that confidence, we are afraid, what are we going to do if that person doesn't get healed? We'll look stupid. Maybe it makes God look bad. And so somehow we have kind of come up with this catch-all answer which is actually theologically true, but I think we misuse it. What is the answer? Well, everybody's going to be healed when they leave this earth through death. Okay, let's just go ahead and acknowledge that. Because there's no sick people, no sick Christians, on the other side of, of death. Everybody is instantly and fully healed. But is that all we're supposed to understand about the Father's promises concerning healing? Is that just supposed to be kind of where we run immediately to? Or should, do, do we have a biblical reasonable expectation for healing to occur prior to us entering into the eternal state? I believe we do. Does it always happen? No. Let me go to the very end, and then I'm going to walk it backwards a little bit to where you and I are right now. First of all, he does have a full healing for us. Let's go to the end of the age. Let's just go there and experience relief. Let's just go there and experience the bliss and the joy of understanding that um, whatever we're, we're battling right now, we will not battle forever as Christians. I just want to tell you that. If, if you're battling a sickness that hasn't been healed, you will not battle it forever. You will um, ultimately, all of us, again, be healed then. That's not where I just want to run to, but that is the truth. But we're going to be healed from more than just physical sickness. We're going to be healed permanently from our regrets. Listen to what he says. That God the Father is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'm just a Bible believer. I'm just, I, I'm just, in the eternal state, 
there'll be no crying. <laughs> Remember the old movie, There's No Crying in Baseball? There's no crying in the eternal state. Why? Because there's nothing to cry about. There's the banishment of every single thing that may have ever induced sorrow, regret, pain, sickness, grief, all of that. It will be banished. It will be gone. It can only track us up to a certain point. And that point terminates when we exit earth and we enter into glory and when God brings down the new Jerusalem and we are living in the fullness of his eternal promises for us, there's not going to be any self-loathing, any guilt, any shame, any regret. All of that stuff's going to be purged. One of the reasons I'm big, a big proponent of never motivating people by guilt, never motivating people by shame, never trying to get something good out of somebody by making them feel terrible about themselves, is because the culture of heaven does not allow our shame to enter in with it. We just don't get to bring our shame to heaven. Some folks ain't going to know what to do. Like, I've been carrying the shame my whole Christian life. What am I going to do with it? The Lord says, I don't know what you're going to do with it, but you're not bringing it across this threshold. Every regret. I've got regrets, man. I've got recent regrets. I've got historical regrets. There are times where I get defeated and wish I could turn back the clock and redo or undo some things. And it's such a torment to the soul. And all of us have things that we regret, things that happened to us and things that we did. But there's coming to a place where literally, I don't know how it works. Just again, use your sanctified imagination. Make it relational. The, the, the vision that John got included the statement that God is going to wipe away every single tear that we will be free from those things that have pained us what about healing in our bodies well it's described right there death shall be no more remember with me that death was the consequence of sin and the fall that's where death entered in and so when sin is fully atoned for when everything that is attached to sin is destroyed either in the lake of fire or with the the destroying the removing of the old heavens and the old earth the former things are taken away and he creates all things new there is no trace of sin whatsoever therefore death is no more there are fewer pains in life that we will experience than watching somebody that we love die. Today was a hard day for a lot of people because they're thinking about dads that aren't here anymore and they're hurting or as dads, they're missing their kids today. And those pains come and are sourced in this thing that we all hate, that, that the unbelieving world is terrified of, that medicine and science and technology is desperately increased in this frantic hope to find a way to one day avoid this thing called death. And it'll never happen because the Bible just declares over all of the ages and over every human being, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. When we get to the back end of our Bibles, we find out there's no more death. Therefore, there's no more sickness. There's no more maiming. There's no more paralysis. There's no more um, uh, brain disabilities, mental disabilities. There's no more um, crippling and paralyzing diseases. There's no more injury. 
There's no more blood, bad, bad blood in the sense of, of, of running through our bodies. No more leukemia, no more cancer, no more MS. There's no more AIDS, there's no more HIV. There's no more mental illness. There's no more muteness, blindness, deafness, paralysis, inability to walk. It's all expunged. It's all gone. But again, here's my challenge. I don't believe that we are cordoned off from that promise to the point where we can't touch it or can't experience it until we get to glory. Friends, I do believe this. And maybe this will stretch some of your theology. For some of you, this is ABC. But I don't believe in healing just because I was brought up spiritually in a healing culture where it was presumed. Matter of fact, I wasn't brought up in that. I was taught that God will heal whom he will heal, and we just ought to pray for it once or twice. If it doesn't happen, then I was taught to believe that the good and sovereign God doesn't want to heal that person. That's what I was taught. I no longer believe that, but that's what I was taught. So what I'm about to share with you, and I'm just going to give it to you as a bullet list. I, I, I didn't get this because I grew up in a healing culture. I got this because I was deeply moved towards what Scripture said about there in the fina finality of heaven's culture, there's no sickness and there's no death, and yet when we're praying, Lord, um, send heaven to earth, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, where there's no sickness and no maiming and no death there, why are we so quick to embrace it here? So let me give you this. I believe that the scriptures teach that physical healing is provided for um, in the atonement through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The physical healing is provided for in that. Every healing that takes place is provided for through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a miraculous work that is accessed because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. I believe that physical healing is consistent with the self-revelation of God. He attaches his name to healing in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 26. He calls himself, I am the Lord, your healer. I am Jehovah Rapha. And so he attaches it to his name. I believe that the Bible is very clear that in the cases of sickness or physical injury, that physical healing should be sought through intercession and seeking the Lord's touch. I believe that. I also believe that we should expect God to heal us and to heal others. And we should faithfully intercede to that end, believing that he will do it. I believe we should pursue that. Now immediately say, yeah, but what if he doesn't? That's not what I'm talking about. That's the question that undermines a lot of people from actually following the plan that is outlined in Scripture. They want to know the what if before they obey the thou shalt. And so we intercede in compassion and love and mercy and faithfulness. We seek him. I believe that some healings are instantaneous. You see that in scripture. You also see in Mark chapter 8, verses 23, 24, and 25, that some healings come in stages. I'm so glad that's in there. I've seen people healed over time, but yet it was still a miracle. With no medicinal intervention, I've seen people healed over time. We have seen in my wife's injury, we have seen progressive healing, but that's not good enough for my family. My family is saying, thank you, Lord, for progressive healing, but we're not satisfied with just progressing. We are pursuing him for the full and the final miracle of a creative work in Amy's leg to where she's healed. What else can we do? Quit? Give up? Stop? No, friends. Jesus touched that blind man's eyes in Mark chapter 8. And remember, it was Jesus that touched him. 
Jesus's fingers, Jesus's saliva on that man's eyes. And the first time he touched him, he said, what do you see? And the man said, basically, I have, I'm not blind now, but I'm still not seeing straight. It's, it's blurry. I see men as trees. What did Jesus do? He gave him instruction. The man obeyed the instruction and the man was miraculously healed. Not instantaneously on the first touch, but progressively through obeying what the Lord said. Let me give you this. We should not presume that God's obligated to heal how and when we believe that he should. He's not obligated to do it your way. He's not obligated to do it my way. But we also should not assume that God will sovereignly um, heal us or others whether we pray for it or not. So he's not obligated to do it when we claim it, when we believe it, when we pray it. He's not obligated to do it how and when we say it. But at the same time, we shouldn't assume that, well, he'll do it whether I pray for it or not. That's not the biblical pattern. We should feel free to pray open-endedly when healings don't occur quickly. Just keep going after it. Go ahead and kill that, that fear of disappointment in you. Just go ahead. And most people give up on praying, not because they don't have faith, but they just can't take another week, month, or year of disappointment. I get it, man. I've, I've been there. A few more things. Some healings require fasting and prayer and overcoming a demonic stronghold through spiritual warfare. Some people are sick, not all. Some people are sick and afflicted because it is a demonic attack on them. And a casual, you know, five-minute prayer in the morning usually doesn't reverse those things. You have to enter into warfare over certain people. Also believe this, we should never assume that when a person isn't healed, it's because they've got sin in their life or the person praying for them doesn't have enough faith. That is terrible. Can we leave the mystery in it? Can you be okay leaving the mystery and healing? There's, there's some clarity on the things we should do. And obedience for me is the primary response when it comes to sickness. I will be obedient to seek the healing God of heaven to come and move on this person's behalf. I don't have to have it figured out. If it doesn't come through, I don't have to go around apologizing for God. I don't have to worry about my reputation if healing doesn't happen like I believed it would happen. I'll never forget there was a time not too terribly long ago where I was praying for someone who was desperately ill and I knew, I knew it, I knew it in my knower, I knew it, that this person was going to be healed. I wasn't worried about it, I knew it. And this person died. And I remember, this was years ago, and I remember at that time thinking, what did I do wrong? What did she do wrong? What did we do wrong? What could we have done better? And all of a sudden, I just tried to serve. I was trying to figure it out. And ultimately, the Father just impressed upon me, Jeff, were you faithful? Were you obedient? Were you moved by compassion? Were you moved in love? Did you do all that I asked you to do? And I was able to say yes to those things. And I just heard my Father say, leave it there. Leave it there. So I didn't have to carry around the burden of if I had only prayed longer, prayed harder, fasted another day, done this or that. Listen, it is not about us. It is not about us. We're conduits who want to see the healing touch of God. Uh, in cultures like this and churches like this, some people won't like what I'm about to say, but just let's just acknowledge the facts. Some people do not get healed. That should never diminish our zeal to go after it it should never ever undermine our heart and passion and zeal to believe god for a miracle breakthrough ultimately we do know that every believer 
is finally and fully and perfectly healed from all injury, from all sickness, from all impairment, the moment that he or she exits this life. That is true, but please don't let that be your paradigm for how you approach healing. Don't let it be. Well, que sera, sera. Ultimately, they die, but hallelujah, they're healed. Now, that may be theologically true, but if that is your constant approach to healing, I'm going to challenge you to go a little bit deeper into the heart of God because that's not how Jesus operated. Jesus did not approach it flippantly. Ah, the Lord will do. The Father is going to do what the Father is going to do. The Lord entered into these heartbreaking situations and moved on behalf. I, I would say this. This is an area that this assembly will be growing in, and I just go ahead. I'm just going to go. This is not even a stretch. It's just an easy prophetic word. We will see an increase in healing to the degree that we pursue it and believe God for it. I promise you we will see it. All right, let me, let me get through. Y'all are like, please do. We're going to be healed from our wounds. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Um, I'm doing okay in my body. I don't have pain today. I don't have any kind of sickness in me that I'm aware of. My, I'm not living with chronic pain like some of you are, or some terrible diagnosis. But man, I carry some heart wounds. Can I get vulnerable for a second? I, I carry some heart wounds, man. And um, stuff that I've done, stuff that was done to me, and um, it's just kind of in there. It's usually kind of, you know, down at the bottom. But every now and then when it just flashes up, and in those moments, Spurgeon called them the fainting fits, where you just, you're like, oh, and you feel it. The missing people, the, the people you lost, the people that you never quite got it right with, or the circumstances that slipped through your fingers, or all of that stuff and the wounds. Maybe it came from abuse, abandonment, betrayal. Maybe you were on the receiving end. Maybe some of the times you were on the giving end. But all of those wounds, there's not a person in the room that isn't wounded on some level. It doesn't mean we're pathetic. It doesn't mean we're not useful. When, when Paul said this, when he told the church at Corinth that we have the treasure of Christ in jars of clay, the jars of clay are brittle. They're made of dirt. They're not pretty. They're not impressive. Nobody does a holy dance over a simple jar of clay. Paul says what makes it so amazing is the treasure that's in it. You and I are the jars of clay, so we're not supposed to be impressive. We're not supposed to act like we have it all together. We're not supposed to pretend we've never been wounded. We're not supposed to put on the Sunday facade and the, 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 the lacquer smile and the, the, oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Oh, highly favored, brother. I am blessed. Hallelujah. And all that stuff, man, all that nonsense. Listen, one of these days it's going to occur to us that when we do that stuff, sometimes we're just being polite and casual conversation, but sometimes we are straight up lying to our brothers and sisters. When we're saying everything's great, what if the Holy Spirit just exposed every lie as soon as we said it? <laughs> Time out, he's lying to you. He's depressed, he's sick, now go minister to him. Listen, I know that's silly, it's kind of stupid, but the fact is, is that we pretend we're not clay pots. We're fine china. 
We're strong-tempered porcelain. We're steel. We're clay pots. The treasure of the gospel, the treasure of Christ, is the brilliance, is the brightness. That's what's worthy of, of, of the desire and the delight of people that look at our lives. It's not supposed to be about the earthenware pot that we are. And so all of these wounds that we carry aren't going to go with us into the eternal state. Nobody's depressed in the eternal state. I'm not coming down on people that struggle with depression. I spent a decade depressed from age 14 to age 24, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol and all sorts of junk just to tune out to my depression from teenage years until I was born again and delivered at age 24. So I'm not cracking down on it. I'm just saying, hallelujah, aren't you glad it's not going to follow you any further than the eternal state? It can't get there with you. You're not going to be wounded. You're not going to be regret. You're not going to be fearful. You're not going to be anxious. You're not going to be sick. You're not going to be tired. You're not going to be any of those things that are, are part of the components of this earthly life. Why? Because God is going to purge the possibility of all of that, and he's going to stand you up. He's going to be able to make you stand for all of eternity in a perfect glorified state where all you will know, all you will know is joy and peace and vigor and power and love and, and, and praise and worship. There's not going to be anything to fight anymore. We, we won't even be able to fight with each other up there. Hallelujah. You know, in the New Jerusalem, there's not a Baptist neighborhood, a Presbyterian neighborhood, a Methodist neighborhood, and, you know, a Pentecostal neighborhood. That's not the way it works. There's no division. It's going to be a place of seamless oneness, and there's going to be a complete healing for our wounds, and we're going to be healed forever. Why? It says the former things have passed away. Now, just be a Bible believer. These are the promises of the Father. He's literally put an expiration date on all of the garbage that we experience down here. So we're pressing, listen, we've got all of these promises that we're, we're, we're using as we pass through, and I'm glad for those. But ultimately, you're not going to need the promises that tell you to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. You're not going to need the promises that says, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you do not faint. You're not going to need that promise anymore. You're not going to need the promise at the back end of the Bible that if you continue to endure, you shall see the kingdom. You're, you're not going to need that. Why? Because you're past the enduring stage, and you're now in the abiding stage and the enjoying stage. That's coming, man. I'm ready for that. So while perfect and comprehensive healing is provided for in the atonement, and it is available right now, this is not the same thing as being in the state of perfection that we're talking about here in the book of Revelation, where you're going to be fully restored, you're going to be without flaw, you're going to be completely glorified. And right now, all of creation is groaning for this promised redemption of itself back into the state that God originally designed for all of creation. Adam had all of this, folks. Adam had all of it. Everything I'm describing Adam had and forfeited. Hallelujah. Even that possibility won't be there in the eternal state. We won't be able to blow it. Adam blew it. God through the covenant, the new covenant, and the back-end promises that are associated with that covenant, God even removes the possibility of you and I fouling this thing up. Amen. He is going to establish it. It is going to be decreed and it will never, ever be forfeited. Last three verses, and I'll get them done in five minutes. You still with me? He has an unfading hope for us, first of all. 
He's giving you an unfading hope. He's got it. For all of you that are believers in Jesus Christ, this is an unfading hope. First of all, right now, he is our sovereign protector. John looks up and, and he says, he who sat on the throne said, I'll tell you what he said in a minute, but this is the order. This is the government of the kingdom and especially, particularly, the eternal state. It's still Jesus and he is pictured seated on a throne ruling over everything there's no more rebellion there's no more resistance there's no more satan looking up saying i want that throne for myself there's no more demonic assault there's no more no more cross of calvary no more crucify him crucify him crucify him no more doubting no more rejecting none of that in the eternal state we will see him as heaven has always seen him perfectly authorized and wholly suited to sit on a glorious throne encircled by an emerald rainbow with eyes like fire and feet like bronze and hair like wool ruling and reigning in majestic holiness like we have never fathomed before and that's the one who is watching over you right now that's the one who is superintending your life. That's the one that you bowed to. That's the one who has pledged to you himself. That is the one who will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the one who is going to finish what he began in you. Listen, I say this every now and then, it just bears repeating. You're not at the beginning of your journey yet, but you're not at the end of it yet. You're in the middle. You're somewhere in the middle of it. So stop living with this ridiculous expectation that you're supposed to have it all figured out by now you're always supposed to be clicking on all eight cylinders you're never supposed to stumble that that literally we live with this ridiculous notion that god is this grueling taskmaster master demanding that we score a hundred on everything that's not him he is an almighty, ever-holy, incomprehensible king. But he's also your father. He's also the father that says, I'm just going to soak you with promise. I'm going to so saturate your life with promise that if you'll slow down a little bit, you'll feel it dripping off of you. In essence, we've got to start hearing the voice of the Lord from time to time saying, I've got this. I've got you. You're no, you're, you're no good to yourself when you're fretting and you're anxious and you're fearful. Child, that's not, that's not the way I've designed you to live. And I don't know, if, I'm really actually sensing it right now in the room, that some in the room have a hard time receiving the ministry of the Lord on your behalf, that you're all about doing for him. As, as if he needed us. He loves us, but God's never said, man, if I could only get this done, I wish I had somebody to help me. It's just not him. And yet we scurry around like the kingdom will stop spinning on its orbit if we have a bad day. And sometimes the Lord just wants to let us have a bad day so we'll recognize, oh, the kingdom gets along fine on my off day. Sometimes he just wants you to catch a glimpse of him on the throne. And when I think of him on the throne, you know what it does? Um, various responses, but a lot of the time it just reminds me, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's in charge. I'm not supposed to be. He's got this. I don't have to have it all. I don't, I don't, it doesn't have to make sense to me. He's got this whole thing. And at the end of the age, guess what? He's still on the throne. 
He is still ruling and reigning. So he's our sovereign protector, but he's also our relentless finisher. End of verse 5, end of verse 6. Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am making all things new. I am making all things new. I am making all things new. That is not just a statement that begins once we step into the eternal state. It has been the work of the Lord, at least in New Testament concepts. It has been the work of the Lord since the day of resurrection. He's making all things new. So brothers and sisters, just recognize this. Come on, you're in process. So is the person you're frustrated with. They're not perfect yet. They're not new yet. He's not done with them yet. You're not done yet. I mean, listen, we are still cooking, amen? He is still working on us. He says, I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I begin it, I finish it, I take care of this. And so when we're thinking about I am making all things new, here's a word for those of us that, or those of you, I don't really struggle with this, who who, who just, uh, Lord, just leave everything the same. Lord, I heard somewhere that you have promised to maintain my comfort zone for me. Thank you. Somebody lied to you when they told you that. Some some of us in the church believe that the one who makes all things new, he does that and we say amen to it. But when he dares to try to change some things in our life, we cry foul. If he's making all things new, let me tell you what we should expect. Change. Change. And a lot of the times he's actually not changing things the way that it's comfortable for you. (laughs) You know what the most useless thing in the world is? An unstretched rubber band. A rubber band is only serving its purpose when it's stretched. Same way with Christians. If we're not stretched, friends, we're not being the people that he's calling us to be. He's making all things new. Right now he's working in the situation you think is dead. Right now, he's actually still working on the thing you gave up on or are giving up on. Right now... He is, he is manufacturing an end game to the thing you think he forgot about. He, he is working constantly. And, um, you know, the, the stopwatch that we hold up to him, you know, hey, Lord, I don't know if you hear the ticking, but I hear the ticking. And uh, I'm just going to hold it a little closer so you can see it because I, I don't want to be rude, Lord, but I think you're late. We never say that, but we, we process like that, don't we? Y'all are looking so religious tonight. Y'all are you're like, I've never heard such things. You're hearing them tonight. He said, it's done. It's done. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. What he's trying to tell us is, hey, there's not going to be a single thing left incomplete. And again, he's saying in the grandest possible way, I've got this. You know what? A, one of the greatest ways we can honor him is actually to exhale and live like he's got this. Just to actually just, I mean, this is how practical it is. We're talking about the end of this age and moving into the next age, and yet if it doesn't have any practical impact on us right here and now, then it's all just religious theological talk. The God who's going to be is the God who is, who was the God who was. In other words, he hasn't changed, and he's always been faithful. 
And so verse number six, verse number seven, I am going to be out of verses and you're going to be out the door. Here we go. Here, he is our eternal provider. Now, just watch this. To the thirsty, worship team, y'all can come on up if you're still here. To the thirsty, <laughs> I didn't know how long I went. <laughs> to the thirsty, I will give from the, uh, the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I'll be his God, and he'll be my son. Sonship in the kingdom is a standing that both men and women have. It's just ancient language that talks about the standing of the firstborn son as being the one who has the, um, the rights to the inheritance of the father. It's incredible to me that in the closing words of Scripture, that the Lord shows himself in this relationship as a father, a father who provides. He's like, I know what you thirst after. And ultimately, in the end of the age, he talks about this picture of the stream of the water of life. And in that is every single thing we're ever going to need. And his heart is disclosed as the one who provides for all of eternity everything we need. He says, this is your heritage. That's a word associated with our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. That the Lord is not tolerating you. That the Father is not merely saying, yeah, you've accepted my son. I'm going to let you in on a forensic technicality because you believed what I told you to believe. Man, that is so mischaracterizing of God. He's the Father who says, you're my heir. I preached this morning on that statement and part of that statement that where he says, it, it is, Jesus said, it's the Father's good, fear not, little flock, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not holding back. If he presents himself as the Father who delights to release his inheritance to us for all of eternity, friends, I think we so deeply honor him when we start approaching him like that now. When we start approaching him as the father who delights to meet our needs, to deepen our understanding with him, to bore down into this relationship that he has provided for us, to no longer treat him as just God. Listen, he's God, but he doesn't want us to relate to him as a distant deity. He wants us to just kind of, if I can say it this way, press into him to crawl up into his lap if I can say that and just to say the one who holds me also holds everything I'm ever going to need so as this day is going to find us this is a coming day let that interrupt the project you've got going on at work or the bill that you're not sure you're going to be able to pay. Or that doctor's appointment. Or that troubled relationship. Or that growing dissatisfaction with this thing called life. Can we stop and fast forward to the place where we recognize everything we've ever needed, all that we've wanted, 
plus most of which eternity is going to be stuff we've never even imagined. We have no concept of how good He is and how good it's going to be to be with Him. It will take all of eternity to begin that unfolding. This chapter is coming to an end sooner than you think. Here's the thing. There's another endless chapter that comes after it. And he hasn't told us much about what that's going to be. But friends, he's going to be there with us. That's what's going to make it good. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet tonight. There's some of you in the room that need to press in again for healing. And this time without asking God for a guarantee. Just press in because He's honored when you press in for healing again. You press in without fear of what happens if it doesn't happen. That's, that's not your call. You press in. Because He's Jehovah Rapha and He heals. For others of you, you've just gotten, listen, happens to all of us just gotten too a little too anchored in this world and it's starting to feel like it's everything to you it's not it is a blip on the radar the youngest person in here has less than 110 years and then forever after that he's going to be with you forever and ever and so i think he's calling some in the room to back to a place of a a, a stabilized heart a peaceful heart a restful heart then there's others in the room that you really need to own it. He's still working on the person that you're upset with. Honor the Lord, honor the Father's work in that person that is incomplete. You know why? Because I'm telling them to honor the Father's work in you because you're incomplete. We're all incomplete. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He hasn't reached the end of the alphabet with them yet. Let Him finish the work. So Father, in the name of Jesus, Take grand thoughts about eternity and bring them home to this moment. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that there would be the gift of faith to touch the gift of healing tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would eradicate sickness, brokenness, or disease out of bodies. I pray, Father, that mental illness would be abolished. I pray that you would cut down to the root and rip up the root of generational mental illness in families in this room. I pray, Father, that toxic relationships would be made pure by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might be like Christ and be the avenues through which toxicity is removed from relationships. Father, I declare by the blood of Jesus that healing is available for marriages in this room. That bickering and fighting and tension and distress is not the lot that God has provided for the Christian husband and wife. And I pray, Father, for those that do not know your heart like they could, give them the willingness to become students all over again and learn fresh like it's the first time just how much you're for them and you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.